One of my favorite blessings comes from the Torah. Traditionally, it is called Birkat Koanim, and it goes, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This blessing from the book of Numbers is frequently called the priestly blessing, for God told Aaron, priest of Israel and brother of Moses, to speak it over the congregation. Aaron was Israel's first priest. He was the first to wear the sacred garments and minister to the Holy One. Aaron, of course, was contemporary to Moses and the Exodus. But roughly half a millennium earlier, there was another priest who profoundly influenced the people of God. Even before Jacob, who would be called Israel, and even before his father, Isaac. When Abraham was but middle-aged, Melchizedek was priest to God Most High. Good morrow, everybody, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry, dedicated to revealing beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. There is an intriguing, rather compelling theory about the relationship between God and Abram, who later in his life was renamed to Abraham. The theory, of course neither provable nor disprovable, proposes that Abraham's God, called something like Yahweh by him, was but one of many deities, because Abram grew up and lived in a polytheistic world. There were grand supreme gods indeed, like those of the sun and rain. There were also innumerable minuscule gods, not as important as their earth-shaking counterparts, but important to those they concern nonetheless. For example, a miller might have prayed to the god that inhabited the millstone, just as the owner of the dye vats prayed to the god of that trade and those vats, just as each individual rock and tree had its own deity. And then there were familial gods, household gods, safeguarding each individual family. So the conjecture is that, what if Abram was introduced to God, who we'll call Yahweh, as a household god, one of many deities known to Abram whose family hailed from the Sumerian city of Ur, and that household god told Abram to venture on, away from that place where countless generations of his kin had lived, away from that land in which they had grown and prospered and gathered repute and wealth. That god told him to sally forth into an unknown country with little more than the promise that Yahweh, the god who watched over his family, would accompany him. Responding with non-perial faith, Abram obeyed. He set out for the land of Canaan. As he set out, who knows, maybe Abram, prudent traveler in a world of many gods, took care to ask favor from the god of the road and those of the trees and rocks along it. Yet most important of all was the household god, Yahweh, a god who seemed to really be there. Whereas gods of the hills and wadis never seemed to listen to Abram's prayers, and from them he never heard a word. Granted, that's no excuse for refusing them their due reverence. But it's almost like those other gods weren't real sometimes. In contrast, Yahweh, he felt, listened to him and responded back. Indeed, 
was genuinely alive somehow. And many years after Abram first set out for that new land, his God Yahweh cut a covenant with him and said, It was I who brought you out of the land of your fathers and into this new land, and I will give this land to you and your offspring to come, and they will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Later on, again, Yahweh spoke to Abram and told him, It is I who have cut a covenant with you. I will be God to you and your descendants. With Yahweh's insistence, words like, I am your God, we can feel the Lord pushing Abram, pushing him out of polytheism, perhaps not even stopping at henotheism, but thrusting straight into monotheism, telling Abram that there are not many gods, but just one. I am God. God enters into and suffuses throughout the world, beginning with a single person, Abram, that is Abraham. God is revealed slowly, from a household God, to God of Abram's vast accompaniment, to the God of a nation, to the God of all people who choose it to be that way. The Lord's palatinate swells from a tent to a country to the entire world. And from this biblical view, the Judeo-Christian perspective and retrospective, it sounds like Abraham was the point through which God entered the world and humanity itself. Of course, you can shake your Bible at me and say, but what about Adam and Eve and Seth and Enoch and Noah and Shem and all the people who came before Abraham? Granted, you are correct, for the Bible indeed does not begin with Abraham. Yet I argue that those who precede him are an introduction. He, though, is the jumping off point of God's connection to people through the line that includes people like Moses, the liberator, Aaron, the priest, Jesus, the Savior, and each of us listening to this message today. If we attempt to pinpoint the genesis of Judeo-Christianity, or ask how the ineffable name of God entered the world, perhaps we posit that, for all intents and purposes, it began with the man Abram and his household god, Yahweh. Soothly, it turns out that Yahweh was so much more all along. Could that be how it happened? Abram, patient zero, as it were. The Bible seems to imply as much. There are no provenient nations, of which we're aware, that worshipped Yahweh. No other individuals, really, as contemporaries of Abraham. Except maybe his nephew Lot, although that supposition is poorly evidenced. No, it really seems like the Bible makes Abraham the source. The person through which God decided to reside with humanity. Dwell among them, us without leaving, and begin to mend the brokenness resulting from our being far from God. Therefore, my question, the question that inspired this discussion, is, if Abraham were ground zero for God, then where did Melchizedek come from? But, of course, before that question can be answered, we must ask the anticipatory question, who is Melchizedek? From a high level, I'd say that there are two approaches to this question. The first is to examine the primary source and limit one's considerations to that account, while the second is to extrapolate, looking to secondary sources, their commentaries, and their conjectures. Let's begin by noting that there are three mentions of Melchizedek in the Bible. 
the New Testament book of Hebrews, the 110th Psalm, and Genesis, chapter 14. Genesis is the primary source, the story of Melchizedek. So let's begin there. Before God renamed him to Abraham, when Abram was a younger man, two groups of kings were quarreling. Before going any deeper, this and other stories set in this time period make more sense when we remember that kings were really more like chieftains, with ambits of a few cities rather than great nations, as we think of kings today. The king of Sodom, allied with three other kings, that is four total, were waging war against five other kings. The four kings suffered a decisive defeat, and in their rout, the city of Sodom was sacked, and its residents, including, most importantly for our story, Lot, Abram's nephew, were taken prisoner. When Abram heard of his nephew's capture, he marshaled a force of over 300 men and pursued the five kings. With a nighttime raid, Abram defeated his foes and rescued Lot. And not only him, but also the other captives and the many possessions that had been taken during the sack of Sodom. All of it was recovered. Responding to this great and unexpected boon, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram and, perchance, strike a deal in which he, that is the king, could gain back, if not the possessions, then hopefully at least the people of Sodom. Abram and the king met in the valley of Shaveh, and Melchizedek joined them also, as recounted in Genesis 14. The king of Sodom went out to the valley of Shaveh, which is called the king's valley, to meet Abram upon his return from the strike against Kedor Laomer, and against the kings that were with him. Now Melchizedek, the king of Shalem, brought out bread and wine, for he was priest of God Most High, and he gave Abram a blessing, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, founder of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your oppressors into your hand. Then he gave him a tenth of everything. The outcome of this parley is that Abram refused the payment that the king of Sodom insisted, instead accepting only the food that his men had already eaten and any recompense that they needed. Before himself, Abram took nothing of what was recovered. Well, friends, there you have it. The story of Melchizedek. If it feels like the story of Melchizedek went by too quickly, then let me recapitulate. The possessions and people of the city Sodom, including Abram's nephew Lot, had been captured during a conflict between the kings of Sodom and his allies and five other regional kings. Abram, acting as an independent party, raided the camp of the five, overwhelmed their forces, and recovered Lot, the other captives, and all their possessions. The king of Sodom therefore went to meet with Abram, to hopefully convince him to gift some of those spoils, now Abram's by rights, to him. So they met. A previously unmentioned character meets with them also. He is Melchizedek, king of the hitherto unmentioned Shalem. Melchizedek brought bread and wine because, as the story tells us, he was priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek blessed Abram, saying, May you be blessed by the Most High God, who made heaven and earth. 
And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of everything. Returning to the original purpose of the meeting, Abram told the king of Sodom that his men were entitled to what they deserved, but otherwise he would keep nothing for himself. If that still felt a bit fast, then that's probably because, well, there's only one sentence about the man. Melchizedek, the king of Shalem, brought out bread and wine, for he was priest of the Most High God, and he gave Abram a blessing, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your oppressors into your hand. Admittedly, it's a jam-packed sentence, but that's it. It's all we have. In episode 9, two weeks hence, we will dig deeper into Melchizedek, including his cameo appearances in Psalm 110 and Hebrews, and we will attempt to make some sense of this arcane figure and his unexpected appearance here in Genesis 14. But that discussion is for next time. Today, we return to the question. If Abraham were the starting point for God, then where did Melchizedek come from? Forsooth, if God reached down to Abraham and his family, spoke to him uniquely, and installed that family and its resultant traditions as the way to reach God, then anything outside of that would be invalid, right? If these matters are as exclusive as the Bible and its exegates often claim they are, then how on earth could Melchizedek not only have known the Lord, but been priest to God Most High also? Maybe you are starting to hear that, at the heart of my inquiry, I am challenging exclusivity and asking about finding the divine in places that we are told God is not found. Now, my sentiments are far, far from pluralism or syncretism, but if we assert that only Abram knew God, Melchizedek frustrates our entire theology and understanding of the world, especially from a Judeo-Christian perspective. You see, the underlying motivation behind God's entering the world through Abram and bringing restoration to humanity through that family, is that God cares about humanity. Rather than let people remain far away and distant, God approaches us in a systematic way that perforce accomplishes the task, and perforce keeps each person free to choose for him or herself whether or not to play a part in it. That approach was to begin with a faithful person, extend into that person's ever-crescent family as it grew into a nation, and opened its doors to any and all who desired to cross the threshold. The question that has dogged theologians and average Joes alike for millennia is, how can the very same God, who would die upon a cross for our benefit, also, until that cross, piteously refuse everyone, yes, everyone, who is not a member of Abraham's family? Can a God who loves humanity also condemn nearly all of that humanity? Of course, the Most High God can do anything, and who am I to question the Holy One? But such a design seems self-contradictory. Does a loving God also abandon the world? In the Christian era, we say that Jesus made a way for all people. But what about before Christ, or in the places where he is unknown or his message unshared? Did, does, God abandon them? And while many people believe that God is a God who makes a way, some of them employ 
really weird explanations for how this is accomplished. Ideas like the work of Jesus on the cross somehow retroactively applied to everyone in the past who would have been a believer if they had only lived in a Christian age. Or the idea that there exist natural Christians who, despite never having heard the good news of Jesus, because they live and act like Christ's followers should, are granted a quasi-believer status in the eyes of God. But, of course, notions as these start with a God who's the God of ledger books and tally marks and checkboxes, a God who is mind-numbingly bland, vapid as a potato, and estivating in the clouds somewhere rather than here on earth, in the midst of our partly simple, partly profound lives in which common concerns matter just as much as cosmic ones. On the other hand, there's a chance that God doesn't need our clever syllogisms and attempts to explain away what we perceive as the incongruencies of our own self-appointed resolutions. Just possibly, God is found in more places than we realize. Is it conceivable that the omnific, omnipresent, indescribable, unboxable, infinitely loving God could be in more places than one? That as God was working through Abraham's family, he was also engaged with people outside that family. After all, who am I to question the methods of the Most High God? Melchizedek was king of Shalem and priest to Almighty God. We don't know this place Shalem or who its people were, but apparently the king served the Holy One. Melchizedek was a priest, and that too implies that Melchizedek was not the only person who might have known God but that he probably helped others bridge their own gaps between themselves and the divine. In the end, I'm not advocating for absolute inclusivity, pluralism, or anything like that. There is a reason why God chose a certain path, through Abraham and his family, and then through Jesus and the belief in him, which has come to be called Christianity. Jesus made a profound statement when he called for worship in spirit and in truth, it seems like most religions are close on the mark in terms of spirit. It seems like truth is exceedingly difficult to judge. It seems like some Christian individuals and some Christian groups might be right there, worshipping in spirit and in truth. But then there is also the fact of the matter that taking up the title Christian guarantees neither. I wonder if Melchizedek was living in the union of spirit and truth. Is there a chance that God revealed those things to him, even before the Bible says that they were revealed to others? Was Melchizedek already priest to the Most High God when Yahweh was still wresting polytheism from his spirit-filled, truth-searching, ever-faithful friend Abram? At the time of the blessing in the Valley of Shaveh, Abram's truth about God might still have been in the making. For indeed, even some fifteen centuries later, when Jesus walked the earth, the intersection of spirit and truth still was wanting. When I hear the story of Melchizedek, I am reminded that God is found in many places, that God doesn't abandon people just because they live in the wrong time or place, that the divine presence can be felt even outside of the places where we expect it, that if someone outside of my religious circle claims to know God, it would be unwise and myopic of me to immediately write that person off. Because who am I to say to whom God will and won't be revealed? 
Who knows? Such a person beyond my narrow world might even be a priest to God Most High. We discuss much about Melchizedek in this episode, but there is still a wealth of Melchizedek that we didn't mention. So in two weeks, join us again to discuss more on Melchizedek and how the descendants of Abraham understood the recondite priest-king who blessed their patriarch. Thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry, a fortnightly podcast dedicated to revealing beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. If you enjoy Stories of Symmetry, then please share it with the people you know. Your word-of-mouth testimony helps us grow more than anything else. But consider also subscribing and rating this show on your favorite podcast app, following at Stories of Symmetry on Facebook or Instagram, and visiting storiesofsymmetry.com for blogs, episodes, and more. Always strive to share God's joy with others. And as you do, go with God, go in peace.